interesting things that happens around the Super Bowl is Roger Goodell choosing to speak. And today, as usual around the Super Bowl, he spoke about a topic I think we all knew he was going to have to talk about, about diversity in the NFL, about the coaching, hiring, and about everything in the NFL's process. And I keep listening to him, and I keep thinking about it, and suddenly it's dawned on me. Maybe we're all having the wrong conversation about the wrong thing. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Courtney Cronin in for Sarah. I'm Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And we start with some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Now, I think it's important to note here that I am a big believer in everything and every opportunity that can come from the Rooney Rule. I think that there's real value in forcing people to make sure that they're interviewing outside of their individual cycles, circles. There's value in forcing people to find more people to lean on and get the best candidates. I think all of it is spectacular, right? But there is some point where we continue to yell about the NFL's problems, and I'm wondering if we're yelling about something that's simply unsolvable. Like, as much as everybody wants to talk about what's wrong, the real question is, how do we fix it? And because I don't think there's an answer to that specific question, I'm starting to wonder, Courtney, what the hell are we yelling about? Oh, man, the hard thing is to take this seriously because last year at his Super Bowl press conference, he was asked the exact same question about the lack of minority hires in the NFL, considering we had a lot of openings. It was more so, I think, on the GM side of things last year where there were two African-American men, Terry Fontenot, Brad Holmes, who found their way into those jobs, but it's such a small number that this conversation is going to keep happening year after year after year until something changes. And I just think that Goodell doesn't want to address what the actual need for change is going to be because he's not stupid. He realizes the people paying his salary, the men and women doing that, are the ones who are kind of like the impediment to change here. So, of course, every year at these things, we get a lot of reporters coming out to try to find some answers, have some sort of credibility coming out of the mouths of Roger Goodell and his cronies, and that's not what happens. It's the same talking points that are regurgitated again and again and again, and that's why, like, the stories that were run last year during Super Bowl week, all you need to do is change the date di- dateline to Inglewood, California, and maybe move a few things up and be like, oh, by the way, Brian Flores tried to blow up the league last week, and uh, here's what Roger Goodell had to say to that. It's the exact same thing that happened last year. It's going to keep happening because I really don't believe these hiring practices and everything that Roger Goodell talked about that, you know, we need to we, – we want to see a different outcome here. Like, we want to see black head coaches in the NFL and people of color and eventually – eventually gender, which I think was hilarious. Yeah, eventually. Like, oh, yeah, women, you're later. We'll get to you guys later. We're going to get to the African-American people here first. So it's a, quote, inclusive process and hopefully an inclusive outcome. Like, these talking points, I don't know who wrote them for him, are just, they're so tone deaf because he says the same thing at these things year after year after year. But it's exhausting going through this process every year without any viable, hey, this is what needs to happen. And that's what, like, right now it feels like everybody's just yelling into a brick wall, and I'm wondering what the point is. Because to your point, Roger Goodell is not the person to yell at. Let, 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 Let me say this so clearly for everybody. He makes $40 million a year for a reason. Part of the reason he makes that money is because we yell at Roger Goodell instead of yelling at our respective team owners. 
Like, I'm a Raiders fan. If I really want to sort of make my voice heard for any real change in any way in the NFL, there is one way I can do that. It has nothing to do with Roger Goodell. He is literally the guy behind the curtain, right? It has nothing to do with him and everything to do about Mark Davis. If I want to make change in the NFL, the only way I can do that, the only way my voice can be heard is if I go to the Raiders, if I yell at the Raiders, and if ultimately I stop either watching or spending money on the Raiders. That's the only thing that actually makes change. And nobody's going to do that. Like, nobody's going to stop watching their favorite team because they don't like the hiring practices. Nobody's going to stop watching the Giants if you're a Giants fan. Like, if you live through the years of suck that's known as the Jets, you're not going to stop watching because suddenly you don't like the fact that there aren't enough diverse head coaches in the NFL. So when there is no monetary accountability then all Roger Goodell has to do is just keep deflecting all of this in some sort of way of, well, all shucks, guys. We're super going to get better at it next year, and we're going to keep tweaking the rules. How? I mean, there's no rule you can tweak that's suddenly going to make people look for more diversity at head coach. Yeah, and I think, you know, when they spray-painted end racism in the back of the end zone, I thought that was supposed to take care of everything. Maybe I was the only one, but they put it in paper. They put it in writing in the end zone. I thought that was supposed to solve everything. Maybe I was wrong on that and, like, actually gave the NFL too much credit. All jokes aside here, it's the same thing that keeps happening year after year after year. And honestly, because he won't say it and nobody else is going to say the elephant in the room, until you start hitting the pockets of owners whose teams, like you had mentioned, you know, people are going to continue to buy PSLs and continue to do all of these things that put money in the pockets of billionaires – until that doesn't happen anymore, you're not going to see a change in direction of where these teams are going in terms of hiring practices. You're not going to see a change in direction of who's making the call on a lot of these positions from the absolute head level. Like, And that's, that's the thing that Roger Goodell's never going to say publicly. He can't. I get it because it's technically capitalism and these owners are allowed to hire who they want. They're allowed to own the teams that they want. And it, it's not a very diverse group among the 32 owners to begin with. Like, until we actually like have like the the moxie and the gall to be able to address that part of it and hold Roger Goodell's feet to the fire here because he's carrying water for the owners we know that but there's that's not surprising at all but like until you like phrase a question to him like that and I don't know if they'd even call on a person for doing that that's never going to get solved because that's the crux of the issue here we're not stupid we all know that that's the real problem here with ownership and with the way that decisions are being made in the NFL and then Roger Goodell's trotted out there to be like you know we're not having the success that we want to with hiring head coaches like how do we need to evolve the Rooney rule how do we need to evolve the processes well you know, the fact that there's a Rooney rule to begin with shows you, like, here's my thing. Anytime you have to have a diversity and an inclusion department on your, on your whatever business it is, it shows you that you're not actually doing things in the right way if you have to have a department like that. Every single NFL team has that. shows you that they're not doing things the right way, and that stuff is not actually solving anything at the highest level of being able to get different people into these jobs. I, I am all in. She's Courtney Cronin. I'm Jason Fitz. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. I'm all in for impacting change and i'm all in for using your microphone your voice whatever you have to create change i think it's important to stand up for what you believe in but at some point you have to look at it and say what's real here to me it's not real i mean they've already incentivized with draft picks they've already incentivized uh, as in any way they possibly can to teams to say hey you have to interview minorities and as a result we hope that it results in more hires which isn't happening so the only other thing that you could say is well let's change ownership that's not realistic 
No, like if Dan Snyder hasn't, if the Washington Commanders haven't been taken from Dan Snyder yet, what the hell is it going to take, right? So like they're not interested in forcing out an owner because, as Sarah always points out smartly, how much dirt does Snyder have on every other person that owns a team? Like so they don't want that ripple. Uh, so then what are they, they going to do? Are they suddenly going to expand the NFL and add teams just so they can bring in minority ownership? And then are they going to demand that minority ownership make minority hires because that's going to fix the problem? Like none just of this pass, is it's re- passing the buck on to somebody. Else. And and none of it's real. That's the problem. Like none of it's realistic. None of it's executable. And to me, if we're gonna yell about change, my God, there has to be a plan at some point of how we will actually make that change happen. Otherwise, we're just yelling into the air and nobody cares. And ultimately, I really don't think Roger Goodell or any of the NFL owners give a damn because they know that they're smarter than we are. And they know that at the end of the day, our fandom as fans, for people that support the league with their money and fandom, the fandom runs too deep for anybody to stop being a fan, no matter what the NFL gets away with. That's some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. We're worked up about it. We'll continue to break it down over the course of the night. Plus, we'll make sure you hear from Roger Goodell and some of his statements coming up a little later. But coming up next, a win-win situation for one star player, no matter how the game plays out in the Super Bowl. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. On Sunday, there will obviously be a winner and a loser to the Super Bowl. Those are the kinds of hot takes that will get me on first take. However, even though we know one team will win and one team will lose, there's one player that win or lose I think could win out of the entire game and win in ways we haven't seen in a long time. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. I'm Jason Fitz, hanging out with Courtney Cronin, who's in for Sarah Spain. And Courtney, you know, we talk a lot about star power. And one of the things that I think is truly interesting about this Super Bowl is that if you start to strip down uh, everybody that's in it and you just look at the Q rating, the sort of like walk into a Starbucks and the non-football fan freaks out about somebody, you, you can make the argument that as great as I think Aaron Donald is and as great as so many of the players are, Matt Stafford, as important as Cooper Cub is, like Odell Beckham Jr. is the guy that has that, you know, whatever factor. Walking down the street, more likely that somebody's going to look over and be like, oh, wow, that's uh, OBJ, right? Like, so the star power is interesting going into the game, but coming out of the game, when it's all said and done, I'm not sure that there isn't a crystal clear path for Joe Burrow to become one of the faces of the NFL, win or lose. If he goes out and has the type of effort he's had in the playoffs where people are diving at his legs, he's getting absolutely annihilated. Aaron Donald actually eats him for lunch, and he still plays through the entire game in one of those ways that becomes the heroic tough guy, even if the Bengals lose. I think there's an opportunity for the legend of Mighty Joe to suddenly become the thing that we talk about from this game. Yeah, because first off, he wasn't supposed to be here, right? It's only a year removed from his knee exploding with the ACL injury and his rookie season getting cut short. And it's like, wow, he's already back. So I would tend to think he's probably in line for that comeback player of the year award. And it's such a great story that everyone got behind him this season. And then all the things that he overcame on the way to getting his team to the Super Bowl. Like you mentioned, the offensive line. Like, he's never once complained about it. Sometimes quarterbacks will take little subtle jabs at the offensive line, and, yeah, I couldn't get the ball out fast enough. Uh, You know, there's somebody sitting in my lap by the time I threw it. Those types of comments are not ones that you ever hear from Joe Burrow. And I also think that the word swag tends to get overused and and, kind of, like, loses its luster, but – the effortless nature that comes with Joe Burrow and just the way that he operates in the public eye, 
in such a keel, like a cool, calm, and even-keeled manner is what makes him such a likable character that win or loss for the Cincinnati Bengals in this Super Bowl, he's going to have a huge amount of fans now supporting him and liking him regardless of whether they like another team or if they're fans of the Bengals or not. He's going to become that next guy that we're all rooting behind. And I really just, like, I love the story about him. I love what everybody's saying about him. I mean, you heard Odell Beckham Jr. yesterday who – I believe said he oozes swag or like if you look up swag in the dictionary, it's burrow in a pair of Cartier glasses like he's right. And that stuff's not just lip service. The guy makes it look fun, but he doesn't make it look like, hey, I'm trying real hard here to be cool. Like nothing against Baker Mayfield, but I think sometimes that Baker tries way too hard to be the cool guy in the room as the quarterback who, you know, basically doesn't give a blank. Joe Burrow carries all that inside but he doesn't like put it in your face. That's why he's so relatable because that could be like you or me out there and realizing, hey, we have something in common with this quarterback. Like, he feels like a normal person. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Don't forget, tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast. Get you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcast. Now, There are certain themes you know coming into the Super Bowl you're going to hear too much about during the broadcast because it's the story they want to make sure everybody gets home. If there's one story I think is going to be told over and over and over again about Joe Burrow, it's about the fact that not only is he the Bengals quarterback, but he's from the area. To that point, he talked about his Ohio roots and being a Bengal in the Super Bowl at his press conference. Yeah, Being from Ohio and being the quarterback of the Bengals is something that I'm really proud of growing up there really weren't a lot of Bengals friends in 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 high school and in middle school and, and growing up it was all Steelers and Browns um, and then there were you know a few Bengals fans here and there that kind of got made fun of a little bit so I think as a team we're excited to put a product on the field that the fans are proud of and that kind of gives them bragging rights they haven't had that in a while so uh, you know, I'm excited to give that to them. It's part of the story. Like, we always love a homecoming. We always love it when somebody, you know, it's the LeBron element of going back to Cleveland. Like, there's mm-hmm. just certain things. And when you when you combine it with incredible success, and look, I, I mean, this is the first time we've seen Joe Burrow in a Super Bowl. This is not the first time we've seen Joe Burrow in a big game. And we've never really seen him lay an egg in a big game, right? So I'm looking at a guy that, to your point, has that it factor, just oozes whatever, like the the coolest guy in the room from the minute he walks in, but in a way that you still think like he's going to say hi to everybody in the halls as he walks through. Like he's got that thing. He's representing the team that he loved growing up. He's representing the state that he grew up in. He's representing quarterbacks that play, you know, that everybody gave up on. We'll hear so much about the transferring and all of these different elements. Like it becomes part of the legend of Joe Burrow that to me he doesn't have to win the Super Bowl he just has to either play his tail off while he's getting beat up or he's got to have a monster game stat wise and we are going to use that as the reason why suddenly on Monday morning the question will be is Joe Burrow the best quarterback in the AFC for the next 10 years like that's really that's I am anticipating Monday morning hot take is going to give me some first takes gonna give me some hot take on Burrow versus Mahomes and Allen yeah, and, and rightfully so. I mean, that's the next crop of talent. You and I talked about it on Spain and Fitz last night, that the AFC is going to be 
real fun the next couple years because the NFC has got this weird turnover that's about to happen and, and people moving teams. But the AFC, you've got Joe Burrow, you've got Justin Herbert, you've got Patrick Mahomes, you've got Josh Allen, and, and whoever else ends up coming in the next couple years to be part of that crop of young, talented, really, really good quarterbacks. And he's at the head of that list because in his second year playing, he's already in a Super Bowl. And you mentioned how in the biggest games of his career so far, including that 2019 national championship with LSU, in the biggest moments, the guy shines the brightest. And we saw it against the Raiders. We saw it against Tennessee Titans. We saw it in the comeback win over the Kansas City Chiefs. He hasn't missed thus far. So if, if he goes out and lays an egg against the Los Angeles Rams, maybe that conversation changes a little bit. But I honestly think more people are going to just like look it back and say, well, you know, it only took them two years to get here. They'll be back, even whether you believe that or not. I just think that the confidence he carries about him makes him so relatable and makes him such a like normal person where a lot of these quarterbacks feel like they're robots when you talk to them, where you can cut open their head and there's a giant football in place of a brain sitting there. I don't get that vibe with Joe Burrow. The way that he's talked post-game and in, in the way that he's interacted with Cincinnati Bengals media members, not just like this week during Super Bowl week when the lights are the brightest on him, all season long. And you just don't ever hear him trying to pass the buck off to somebody else as to, like, why things have gone wrong and the offensive line and all of the struggles that he's had there. Like, trust me, I've covered a lot of quarterbacks who definitely like to take shots at the offensive line for not protecting them. You just don't get that with Joe Burrow, and I really can appreciate that because he feels so relatable and in a way so normal, which is just not a normal thing when it comes to NFL quarterbacks. You're so right. She's Courtney Cronin. I'm Jason Fitz, Bain and Fitz. You're so right about – the body language and the way he handles some of the beat up that he's taken, right? Like I keep thinking about talking to Jeff Saturday on sports nation a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about how you can watch Kyler Murray and see that there's a spot where the frustration just seeps through. We never see that from Burrow. And it'd be so easy for him to look at the lineman and say, what the hell are you doing? He's never done it. I don't imagine he'll do it. Even though Aaron Donald, I think has a huge game, Joe Burrow becomes the superstar coming up next. Speaking of stars, I'll talk to one of my favorites next. I'm not going to be professional. We're talking to somebody from the Raiders. It's happening next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Courtney Cronin in for Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. Spain and Fitz is presented by Progressive Insurance. You could say big when you bundle your auto, home, motorcycle, RV, or, vo- or boat. Visit Progressive.com. They tell me I can't spend this whole interview talking about the Raiders, but nobody's the boss of me. I'm a lifelong diehard fan. We're going to do that and more. K.J. Wright joining us right now, Super Bowl champion, obviously, and, of course, member of my beloved Raiders. So, K.J., I I, got to start with culture because I think this is interesting. I was looking at your social media, and you appeared on a podcast where you were talking about the Seahawks and how culture is built from the top down. We have two organizations right now in the Super Bowl that are feeling that. When you as a player walk into an organization, how do you figure out what the culture is behind the scenes? Oh, well, I knew that from playing all my years, even growing up as, as as a young kid, that the Raiders' culture was at the top of the top. Just, I believe it starts with the fan base. And, um, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to play in the black hole. I was upset. But just seeing those fans come in that, that Vegas stadium, just how, you know, passionate they were, energetic they were, they absolutely loved their Raiders. And um, just the organization and, and the vibe was just really good when I first stepped, stepped foot in that door. Just my teammates were just welcoming me in with open arms. 
And, uh, you know, Mike Mayock was awesome. The head coach at the time, John Gruden, was awesome. And so I really enjoyed my time in Vegas, and um, hopefully I could do it again next year. When we talk about culture, culture is also those things that help teams get through really tough times. And, and the Raiders this past season, it's no secret, dealt with a lot of its share of off-the-field stuff that could have took it, taken a team and, and thrown them off the deep end. And you guys managed mm-hmm. to rebound from, from so many different things that were completely out of your control. How did the culture in there, like, and where, where do you think it started in order to kind of keep this tr- team on track and keep the glue of this unit together? Yeah, like I say, it always starts at the top. It starts at the top and then trickles down everywhere else. And we knew that with our with our coach at the time that took over, Coach Rich Passaccia, we knew that he was a man that was passionate about this team. He's someone that, that really cared about his teammates, and he wasn't going to let us just have a season that was just, we're really, you know, losing all our games. He's a man that got us all on the same page. He's someone that, that addressed some issues that was, was in the team. And so it started with him, and then you go with guys like Derek Carr, uh, Max Crosby, myself, that, that stepped in and just made sure that this ship stayed afloat. And so just hats off to just everyone in that building for not letting that season just go to waste. You mentioned Coach Basaccia and KJ. I mean, I think it's interesting. I've talked to a couple of guys that were on that team, and you're talking about somebody that is absolutely loved in that locker room. Obviously, the Raiders mm-hmm. go in a different direction when they name Josh McDaniels as the head coach. What does Josh and the new organization have to do or the new regime have to do to sort of step in and win over a locker room that truly loved a guy that didn't get the job? I know. I mean, for me, it's just I wish that owners could just take players' opinion and things. I believe if you interviewed every player, I believe that 100% of the guys would say, I want this guy as my head coach. And so he just meant so much to you know each guy in their own individual way. And so I believe when McDaniels come in, you know, one thing he got to show is that, hey, I truly love you guys. I truly love you guys and, um, you know, care about you. And with Coach Rich, he had an in- impact on offense, defense, and special teams. It can't just be one-sided. I just focus on the offense. It got to be a team effort. You know, I'm, I'm involved in all three phases of this football team. And so we know that his track record is great when he was with uh, New England. And I'm sure that him and Derek will be off to a great start to be able to win some ball games. Now, your former defensive coordinator, Gus Bradley, is now headed to Indianapolis to replace Matt Eberflus, who's now headed to Chicago. So I'm wondering, what are the Colts getting in Gus Bradley as they try to take another step forward with their defense? Gus is freaking amazing. I've had Gus. I had Gus my first two years and and when I was in Seattle. And I just remember the day, like it was yesterday, when he called me to come join the Raiders. We kept in contact over the years, and he's just someone that, that also loves his players. He's someone that, you know, when things go bad, Gus Bradley's going to be a man that stays positive and get everyone on the same page. And so he's in that building from sunup to sundown, making sure that the defense has every opportunity to be successful. And I believe that, you know, he get a hold of um, DeForest Buckner and, um, you know, that, that great linebacker they have over there. And so he's an awesome man, but, you know, really, really good coach. We're talking to KJ Wright on Spain and Fitz. And so – uh, you know, as you talk about sort of the, the, the coaching and, and the organization as a whole, let's go to some of the teams that are in the Super Bowl right now. Uh, obviously, you saw the Bengals in the playoffs. In your mind, what do the Rams have to do to shut down Cincinnati? It's, in my eyes, it starts at number 28. I believe that Nixon is one of the best running backs in the NFL right now. He's a guy that they're going to give him at least, I say, 20 touches. He needs to get his touches. And um, they run stretches. They run stretch cut. They run a lot of perimeter runs with him. And so you got to stop that guy, and um, he's not easy to tackle. 
And so you then obviously go to Burrow and all those weapons he has. And um, I'm, I can't wait to see this uh, Jamar Chase, Jalen Ramsey matchup. It's, it's going to be really good to see. And so you got to be careful going to Ramsey's side. And um, But, yeah, really talented offense. I believe that this offensive line obviously has their hands full, but they I'm sure they're going to have a really good game plan for them. Yeah, I think we're all hoping that that matchup actually indeed happens. We know how much zone that the Rams play uh, defensively. I would love to see Jalen Ramsey get to take Jamar Chase to mm-hmm. task for most of the game. So, fingers crossed. I'm with you, KJ. I want to see that happen. Who, um, I, I who, know are you that, your, who are you putting your money on? Ooh, we said this yesterday. <laughs> I, you know, we <laughs> – put me on the spot here I said that Jamar is going to have a performance it's probably more like what he did in the first two rounds than the Kansas City game but um I'm, yeah. I'm willing to eat my words considering who he will be going <laughs> against and the uh the lockdown nature of um of Jalen Ramsey but I, I wanted to ask you just yeah. about this season that you had with the Raiders alone and all that you guys were able to overcome and when you look back at your time with Seattle obviously you went to a Super Bowl you're a Super Bowl champion does it? Is there a way to kind of quantify like what this season though meant, given everything you guys were able to overcome? Maybe outside sources writing this Raiders team off after the midway point of the season and showing that you guys were able to get to the playoffs in spite of everything else. Like, does mm-hmm. this season carry a little bit more weight? Yes, for me personally, it does. Just for me to give my whole uh, NFL career to the Seahawks and for them to to let me go. I wanted to prove how special I am. And for me to come to the Raiders week one of the regular season and to help contribute to the team, help lead the team to the playoffs, that just showed, it just re-showed me how special of a player that I am, that I could help an organization. I am a big piece in, in the success pie. And so for me to come here and just help this team get to where they haven't been in a while, it, it, really, it was really a, a proud moment for me. KJ, I want you to make me smarter, and that's not difficult to do. I'm not particularly bright, but I want you to make <laughs> me smarter about football, right? Because a lot of times you mentioned Gus Bradley and what he did for this Raiders defense, and, and I heard a lot of people talking about the fact that he came in and sort of simplified concepts and just let guys play without thinking as much. But now Patrick Graham comes mm-hmm. in as a defensive coordinator that I hear is known for running multiple uh, forms, that, and, and he'll put anybody into any situation. What from a defensive standpoint, can you play loose, fast football and still have to think enough when you're in a multiple defense? I mean, I've talked to guys all the time across the league, and from what I hear is that some coaches will make you make a check when there's a motion, when there's a slot formation. If this guy goes, we're going to go to this coverage, and they absolutely hate it. And so with what I've been playing my whole career is that we're going to line up you know what calls we're going to get, but what we're going to do is that what the offense do, we're going to somewhat jiggy-rig our defense. We're going to run our cover three stuff, but, hey, hook player, I want you to play it more this way, or buzz player, when Jamar Chase is here, I want you to really buzz out to him versus just hanging out over the running back. And so I believe that the way to play really good defense is to be simple and let the guys play fast and free. KJ, you got a pick in the game for us in the Super Bowl? What I want, if it was my if it was my ideal world, I would want the Bengals to blow out the Rams. <laughs> Give me a fifty to, to two game, and I I would I, w- I would be very happy. But um, if I had to put my money on it, I I got the Rams winning this ball game. It's what? just um, Matt Stafford. Yeah, yeah, it's just Matt Stafford is. I believe it's his time, and he's the guy that I've respected throughout my whole NFL career. And it'll also be cool to see him get a Super Bowl ring. 
KJ, real quick before we let you go, I know that you were from Olive Branch, Mississippi. I spent three years of my career down in Jackson at the Clarion Ledger, so you can't blame me for this. I came mm-hmm. after you would have been eligible to be a dandy dozen. Do you hold any sort of resentment towards anybody <laughs> down there? I know that every guy that I talk to now that covers that I've covered who's now in the NFL, the A.J. Browns, the Jeffrey Simmons, Raekwon Davises, all of my dandy dozen guys – that still holds a lot of weight to them. Do you do you feel any type of way about it now, all these years later, after even winning a Super Bowl? I, I'm telling you, I've been disrespected throughout my whole career, and I use all of that to fuel me. And that was just something in high school that I that I noticed, and um, yeah, it just drove me to be in this position today. And so, not making the Pro Bowls all those years, not making the Dandy Dustin, being being snubbed from the All Pro list, it just fuels me to be the best. And um, I need that extra motivation to be in this position I am today. KJ, I will tell you that I was born a Raiders fan. I've been a Raiders fan my entire life. I will never forget being at the national championship game with a bar full of people that all work at ESPN chanting my name as I put up a $1,000 bar tab <laughs> to celebrate my beloved Raiders <laughs> finally winning a, 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 the chance to get into the playoffs, man. You're a big part of what made this a special season for me. Thanks for letting me be a fan for a second. Really w- loved watching you mm-hmm. play. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah, thank y'all for having me. Oh, I love it. We got to let me talk to more Raiders, although I do have beef with Canty. Apparently, Max Crosby's going to be on with Chris Canty tomorrow. I, I, I don't know how I feel about that, Max. Call me. Like, this This just, it just feels like there's show-on-show dispute going on right now. I've, I've officially threatened to kick Canty's butt just because he's doing that. I don't know. Coming up, a former GM's going to tell us why the Lakers should not make a trade at the deadline. You don't want to miss it. It's next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. There are a ton of opinions on what the Lakers need to do and how the Lakers can save their season. But what if the answer is actually do nothing because it can't be saved? Could be fact right now. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Courtney Cronin in for Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And Courtney, we'll get back to the Super Bowl talk in just a few minutes. Uh, but it is NBA trade deadline week. And one of the most interesting things to me is I even saw on ESPN.com today an article at the time about uh, the Lakers and uh, sort of understanding within the halls that their roster is not good enough and they need to figure out what to do. And I think it's curious because there's no easy solution. If you're the Lakers right now, you got to look around and say, okay, I don't know how we got this deep into a bad hand of poker, but there's no break on the cards that's going to help us get out of it. Yeah, and like this has been going on for months now, right? Like the conversation when the season started and seeing where they were like even a month ago, and right now they're 26 and 29 after they just lost to the Bucks, and there's got to be that sense of urgency of if we don't do something now, this season is probably over and it's probably doomed. And how many more years of LeBron James are you going to get? Think about all the moves that they made, bringing Russell Westbrook over, trying to, you know, fix this core around Anthony Davis, around LeBron James, to make sure that they could get out of the West this year. Doesn't feel like anything that they did this off season has gotten them any closer. So. I, I, I can understand. I saw Dave McMenamin had an article up at ESPN.com that they feel urgency to make changes as the deadline nears, but what are they going to do? Because their name has not really been thrown around in the mix of like these serious contenders for trying to maybe get a Ben Simmons, trying to you know upgrade their front court, things like that. I don't know like 
of all the moves that they could possibly make, it just kind of feels like they're maybe like third or fourth down the list of the teams that are like seriously considered to be in the mix here. Well, and it's my constant reminder, just like I say all the time with these quarterback conversations, it's not Madden. Like this isn't NBA 2K, right? Like (laughs) this is not an easy thing to just a magic, uh, all of a sudden, bam, press a few buttons and the computer will be stupid and take a trade. And to that end, ESPN NBA front office insider, uh, I asked Bobby Marks uh, earlier uh, how the Lakers can fix their team at the deadline. Uh, I don't think it's fixable. <laughs> I don't see it. I saw them last um, last night against Milwaukee. There is so, so much separation from them in Milwaukee, Phoenix, Golden State like that. You know, you potentially could move, uh, you know, Taylor Horton Tucker, Kendrick Nunn, first-round pick for Eric Gordon, you know, deals like that. There's no kind of wave the wand and all of a sudden the situation in Los Angeles gets fixed unless all of a sudden – we see a different Russell Westbrook come, you know, come the playoffs, and uh, that's that's a big if right there. I think that's an interesting point, though. If you're the Lakers, the one thing you got to be hoping is that you got all these guys together, and you got to hope it clicks at some point. Like I don't think any of us believe it will, but Courtney, at some point, if you're Russ, you got to believe that okay, back half of the season, I can start to catch fire like I have many times before. I can start to play a little better. The shots will start to roll in. I'll shoot my way out of the slump that I'm in. I'll get rid of the yips, and suddenly I'll be the rust that the Lakers thought I was going to be. And you combine that with a healthy LeBron and a healthy AD, and I realize that I'm suddenly waiting for the genie to come out of the lamp and tell me what next magical wish I'm going to ask for. But that's if you're if you're the Lakers, that might be your only hope. Yeah, and I mean, like, I mean, that was a pretty damning statement that there's not much that they can do at this point, right? Like, if this is the best that it's going to get, like, goodness, like, how how do you how do you even approach that beyond this season unless you're thinking again of, like, you're just, like, going to blow it up? Because, like, I mean, they they took a risk thinking – think about this. They took a risk putting mostly veterans on minimum contracts to fill out their roster. And, yeah, they did hit on some in Carmelo Anthony, Malik Monk. Um, think about everybody else that they, like, missed on. DeAndre Jordan, Kent Bazemore. Um, it just, it just feels like this whole thing has been like a really bad experiment of how to get this team competitive and everybody else around you at this point is getting better. Like Bobby had said, the difference in the gap between where the Bucks are and where the Lakers are, considering that that's a team that they just lost to the other night, 131-116, that's probably got to like scare the front office of Los Angeles thinking, okay, we're really not on the track that we thought we were going to be at this point going into like this half of the season. Especially when you talk about 131-116 in a game that didn't even feel that close. Spain and Fitz, Courtney Cronin, and for Sarah Spain, I'm Jason Fitz. And it led to a follow-up question because everybody just wants to see something done. And sometimes you just do things for the sake of like, we got to mix it up. This isn't good enough. But I asked Bobby directly, if you were the Lakers GM, you come into the trade deadline, you know exactly who you are. Do you make a move just to desperately try and mix things up? And this is what he said. No knee-jerk reaction. Play out the season, uh, retain your first-round picks, figure out what you want to do with Russell Westbrook in the offseason. With a trade or without a trade, this team is is a play-in team right now. There's no fix that would get them into the top five or top six of the Western Conference. Oh, gosh. I mean, think about that. Like, Bobby's just basically saying, wave the white flag, get through this year, and just live to see another season. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, and I mean, like, what do you do at that point, though? Does that mean, like, LeBron – like, where is LeBron James in all of this? Do we anticipate him playing all that much longer, or is he just going to end up – I mean, it's weird to think, like, you know, Tom Brady just retired. Are we seeing the end of LeBron James here soon? I still think that we're probably a couple years off from that. But you've got to be factoring that in as to, wow, that could mean – 
another lost season for the Lakers, and another time that we don't get to see LeBron James, LeBron James contending for a title. So I don't know. I mean, like, what do they need the most of right now? It's shooting, and they need they need to figure this thing out because they just haven't been able to with the core that they brought in and everything that they try to place around LeBron James so it could take the burden off of him and he doesn't have to do so much. I mean, I think I heard the rumor the other day, um, you know, about Eric Gordon and thinking that he might be the, the, you know, from the other Los Angeles team, that he would (laughs) potentially be a part of this. Um, Maybe it's a route that the Lakers want to go down if they can't find, like, another suitor for, you know, the the Horton Tucker package, so to speak. I mean, I know that that one has been kind of thrown out. Um, It's a name that comes to mind to me, but at this point, like, how are they possibly going to try to fix this? It just all feels like too little too late. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I oversimplify. I know that. But, you know, I said this last year when Ben Simmons was suddenly part of all these trade conversations. I kept thinking, did GMs, like, not watch the same playoffs we all watched? We saw the fact that he's scared to shoot, and we saw what impact it had on the 76ers, which impacts trade value. I'm now looking at Russ, and for everybody that's like, oh, you got to trade Russ – for what? Like everybody else is looking at the same version of Russ saying, no, I don't, I do not want that. And frankly, I don't think there are a lot of teams in the NBA that are sitting around saying, what can we do to help the Lakers out of their pickle? Like that's not a real thing either. So in my mind, I'm looking at a league that's looking directly at the Lakers saying, hey, you tried to make your special sauce and you failed and that's on you. And we're going to watch you go down in flames while we all laugh about it. And as we get to this NBA trade deadline, there's a lot of fan bases that are looking at the players on their team that suck thinking we're going to find a way out. And it is just not that simple. There are not teams this year that are so far out of it. They're looking to take somebody else's trash on. That is just not part of the NBA lexicon this season. Coming up, we'll get back to the Super Bowl. Roger Goodell spoke today. I want you to hear it. And I'm also going to tell you why it's complete trash. That's next. Bain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. When it comes to Super Bowl week, everybody has a job to do. Reporters have questions to ask. Roger Goodell has answers to give. And we have to analyze it all. But what do you do when you realize that you're answering and analyzing a bunch of comments that are essentially trash, that have no meaning, and that will make no change? That's the decision we're going to have to make when we sit in front of a microphone every time Roger Goodell speaks about the same things. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Courtney Cronin in for Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. We'll get to a little bit of fun on the Super Bowl in just a few minutes, uh, have a little bit of fun with halftime. But uh, I'm, I'm fired up, Courtney, and I'm fired up because I feel like we continue to run in the same circles and chase our tails when it comes to any sort of answers that have real solutions when it comes to what the NFL pretends it cares about, whether that is the Washington football team or whether it's diversity. The NFL comes in late to every party, says, yeah, we're on top of it, and then Irish ghosts out of the thing before they have to answer for anything. And the latest example of that is Roger Goodell speaking today at his press conference, as he does every year, speaking about some of the pressing issues. This is what he had to say when it came to the effectiveness of the Rooney rule, very specifically when he was asked about it. This is Roger Goodell today at his press conference. The Rooney rules example has changed many times over. I think we're on at least five or six changes, which is a a, a good thing in the sense of how it evolves, how it has to change to address the issues that we are facing today. And I think that's the core of the message that we've been talking about here is, okay, we're not having the success we want with head coaches. How do we evolve that rule? Or do we have to have a new rule? 
do we do we need to figure out some other way of being able to achieve that outcome? And I think we're not going to rest until we find that uh, and we get those kind of outcomes that I think are um, they're mandatory for us. There they're just has to be the way we're going to to move forward to have an inclusive league. Now, Jim Trotter today spoke or asked a question and was very poignant in his question that he asked to Roger Goodell about the lack of representation and diversity on the NFL executive committee, within the NFL media committee, in decision-making processes through all of it. So, Courtney, I'm sitting here talk, hearing Roger Goodell speak about diversity when, in fact, when it comes to any of this, there's no indication that there's anybody capable of coming up with real solutions that has the power to do anything about it. So I feel like we're wasting our time. The fact that we keep changing the Rooney rule, as Roger Goodell said there in that soundbite, is showing you that it doesn't work and that it's something that, yeah, while it had good intentions initially when it was implemented back in 2003, it really hasn't yielded much success. And I think that there's kind of a level of frustration, especially among black coaches, black executives who have not you know, so to speak, been beneficiaries of this and who, who have dealt with the same hiring cycles and feeling like they have sham interviews, even if they're not willing to come out and say as much like Brian Flores did. They all look at this and kind of roll their eyes and feel like they're, you know, the token candidate or filling a quota. And that's got to be really, really tough to stomach. And so when Roger Goodell answers questions like this, you know, they say that like diversity, inclusion, equality are part of their core principles. The numbers very clearly say otherwise, and I think that that's why this is such a big topic right now on the heels of the Flores lawsuit coming out a week ago, where people are tired of the same old answers, the same old sort of rhetoric around the Rooney Rule and being like, yeah, we want inv- we want di- diversity, inclusion, like we're really pushing forward, it's a core initiative, you know, you hear those things, it's such corporate speak. And it's just kind of frustrating when the commissioner is saying the exact same things over and over again, which if you listen to that for the first time, if you had no clue about how the NFL actually operates, you'd be like, yeah, like there's some good intent in there. Intent doesn't matter. It's like, what are the actions that are actually like in place to try to make sure that the same sort of nonsense that we've seen over and over again doesn't happen because it's all lip service. And you mentioned that intent means nothing to me without specificity. Like, what are we actually going to accomplish and how are we going to accomplish it? And that's the part of this that I think is particularly maddening. Like, I'll go back to when I moved to Connecticut. You know, I lived in Tennessee for 20 plus years. I moved to Connecticut and like property taxes, for example, in Connecticut, or or, or I pay more per month in Connecticut for property taxes than I pay per year in Nashville. Like, that's how different they are. And I remember sitting down with people in Connecticut. And I'm like, somebody tell me where the money goes. Like, I, it's cool. Like, property taxes are atrocious. I just wonder where we spend the money. And the answer was always like, well, big big government. No, that's, that's not an answer. Like, tell me exactly what happens. And that's what I'm waiting for when Roger Goodell says it's not working. I, I, what I'm wondering is, okay, why is it not working? Who specifically are you leaning on to try and figure out what would work? What actionable items could be implemented that would actually create change? And we never get answers to any of that. So It's always that there's got to be, oh, we're going to create this committee, and then how about this subcommittee of this committee? It's always committees. Like, this feels like corporate America because it is corporate America when there is an issue and people are trying to solve it. They just come up with, hey, let's get this group of people in together and have them be like our brain trust behind this. 
and it never actually solves anything because as good as those ideas can possibly be from like people on the diversity and inclusion staff and teams at the league office, it's the people at the highest level who look at that and like kind of poo poo it and push it to the side being like, yeah, okay, that's great. Okay. Like, thanks. Really appreciate all the work since that. Like, let's go back to business as normal because it's been working for us in lining our pockets all these years. Like they don't actually care about change. Anybody who thinks that, like, I know, I know it's so great to have, like, an idealistic view on this stuff. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you can go to these press conferences. You can keep asking the same questions. You can try to hold people accountable. But until you actually see the owners be, like, wake the hell up and be like, oh, wait, actually, like, we're the problem. They don't realize they're the problem yet. Or they do, and they just frankly don't care, which is even more egregious. You know, Michael Golick Jr. used to always say that uh, offensive linemen, when they're running drills, move their arms really fast because it makes you think that they're trying to run fast. So as long as they move their arms fast, nobody catches the fact that they're just sort of slowly running in place. It's what the NFL is doing. Like, mm-hmm. they're moving the arms really fast, so we're like, oh, yeah, they're working on But But at some point, the onus falls back on us. Like, I look at it and say, why are we yelling? Like, if you know, if, if you're dating somebody that's crazy and you know she's crazy, at some point, you either break up with her or you decide that you're just accepting crazy. And, yeah. like, that that's where I am with this entire conversation. Just accept that this is who the NFL is. Like, either the only thing that creates change is we all stop watching, we stop giving them money. Nobody, Nobody's going to do that. So the NFL is going to do whatever the hell they want to. So why do we care? Like, I, I, at this point, I just, I feel like I'm done talking about it because nothing's ever going to make any change in any of these issues. And the owners don't really give a damn so why do we care no i i I hear you and it's it's disheartening to say that right like it's kind of like we concede that like this is what it is and that's not the way as journalists that we're conditioned to think like we are conditioned to try to find the truth to try to find the catalyst for change but you're running into a into a brick wall until you get owners to actually buy into this, like I'd love to see them at this press conference that Roger Goodell hosts every year to give a state of the NFL or at least a couple representatives of it. Like, and we're not even talking about like the other massive story here uh, outside of the, the, the hiring of black coaches that that was a big part of this today, the Dan Snyder nonsense. And we find that it's like the NFL, not the team itself. The commanders are going to have this, another investigation into like what had happened in, in life in all of the cases of sexual assault and, you know, all the allegations of harassment within that organization. Like, we're not talking about yet another, like, the biggest thing in the NFL right now is all getting swept under the rug and protecting him and his cronies instead of the women that have come forward. The fact that they have to have get, get Congress involved in all of this is absurd. Like, the league itself can't do any of these investigations because it doesn't want to, like, irritate owners. And that, that to me, is something that Goodell never, ever wants to speak on because, you know, who lines his pockets and pays him that $40 million salary? Dan Snyder and 31 other owners. Like, that's the problem here. And until, like, you know, it, it, they're just unstoppable in that sense because no one's ever holding them accountable. So I'd love to be able to see, not that it'll ever happen, but wishful thinking, the owners have to come to, like, these sort of things every year at the Super Bowl or a representative of the owners, not Goodell, who carries their water, and address that and answer for it. Well, you mentioned that. When we come back, you'll hear what Roger Goodell said today. I'll tell you why it's cowardly, and we'll have a little bit of fun, too. Trust me, I'll tell you why this is going to be the most epic halftime performance of all time. But you'll hear from Roger Goodell next, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio.
Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Jason Fitz hanging out with Courtney Cronin in for Sarah Spain. Roger Goodell spoke today, and I keep saying this. I keep thinking about it. I feel like every time he speaks every year, I'm a little like Charlie Brown, and I'm running up to the football that we know is going <laughs> to move, and I'm still going to go for it. And every year it's like, well, gosh darn it, this is year things get better. And, uh, and then a year from now we'll be having – the exact same conversations. And we've said that already when it comes to diversity hiring in the NFL. But the other thing that I found laughable was Roger Goodell speaking today about Daniel Snyder and the Washington Commanders. Let me be clear. Nothing about the situation is laughable. But Goodell's comments, to me, are absolutely just trash. This is what he said about the ongoing situation between Snyder, the Washington Commanders, and the investigation. But the roundtable did bring forward another... uh uh, witness that uh, spoke about her experience with Washington. I think we treat that very seriously, um, and we need to look into that. We'll um, obviously do an investigation. We've said that uh, from day one, that we will look into this and, and do an investigation. Um, we need to understand what really truly happened in those circumstances and treat that uh, in the best uh, and most serious way uh, we can to make sure we preserve the type of culture we want uh, in the NFL. Uh, I do not see any way that a, um, a team can do its own investigation of itself. Uh, that's something that uh, we would do. We would do it with an outside expert that would be able to help us um, come to the conclusion of what the facts were and what really truly happened so that we can make the right decision from there. So we'll, we'll treat that seriously and move forward. I mean, Courtney, like mm-hmm. I – Treat it so seriously like they did the first investigation where they had Dan Snyder sign forms that prevent the information from ever getting out. Like, treat it so seriously like what they've done over the course of, like, how is it they're just finding witnesses when they did their own investigation, which we've still been given no clue to, while they've still waited to give Congress information? Like, the amount of lies being told by Roger Goodell through this process just presumes that all of us are too stupid to figure it out. Maybe we are, but, man, I just can't listen to it with a straight face and pretend that he— even remotely cares no it just he's trying to appease him in a way again he's one of the 32 owners that pay his salary and I do think that there were subtle comments today about how I don't see any way a team can do its own investigation of itself that's something that the NFL would do and they would do it with an outside expert like Snyder's announcement the other day that they're going to hire their own firm um, after some of those more recent investigations came out after the Tiffany, Tiffany Johnson was an employee. Um, Her allegations, I believe, came out last week in front of Congress. Um, You know, we're going to hire our own person independently of the league, and we're also not going to release the findings of that, which was the same agreement that they had the first time around. Like, what the hell does this guy think he's doing? Like, we're not stupid here. We know, we know why you're going about it this way. And, I really hope that the NFL, I know that they're basically saying, no, that's not happening, and they're trying to step in here to make sure that that continues to not be the case. But it's just like, I I, I struggle with this so badly because as you and I were talking off air, like the Jerry Richardson thing and removing him as an owner, like what's the reason that that was able to happen? Well, there was, you know, audio proof, I believe, of, of the things that he was saying and doing and all of that, that you caught him red-handed. Well, that same sort of stuff apparently does not exist with Daniel Snyder, so it makes it that much more difficult. And, like, the other thing that, like, Goodell got into today about, like, how 
someone just like straight up asked him like, yo, how do you remove an owner? Right. And he said that like, quote, I do believe the clubs have the authority to remove like an owner from the league. Ultimately, it's a league vote, I believe, end quote. We know that that's not going to happen. Dan Snyder's got so much dirt on other teams and other owners, and all the own- other owners are probably, like, shaking in their boots right now, thinking, like, oh, God, if it comes to that, like, we have to vote to keep him in because then our dirty air- laundry gets aired. You just have, like, really crappy people running teams. No. People who have no integrity. People who have, like, like, show me an owner who has, like, a ton of integrity who's never had some sort of blemish on them. You can't because this, these are billionaires, and money talks, and money breeds power, and money breeds arrogance, and – that's what you run into here. And, of course, like they're not going to try to take him out of position. Like The NFL itself is not going to try to intervene here because it is an owner vote, even though I do feel like there has to be a way that they could if they really wanted to. But the fact is they don't want to. Nothing about the NFL is genuinely trying to solve anything. I mean, the attempt to keep things in arbitration is the attempt to keep the public from getting any sort of record of what's happening. And then you start talking about the agreements that were signed between the the Washington football team, the commanders, sorry, and the NFL about the investigation uh, to keep that information out of public records. You think about the fact that the NFL has said, yeah, we're, we're trying to get Congress all of the information they want. But but really what you just said that, that hits me, 32 owners that are all billionaires, and you're telling me that they couldn't find every single witness to talk to every single person. You're telling me 32 billionaires couldn't come together with the means to put together the most thorough, incredible investigation that man has ever seen in the history of all mankind if they really wanted to. to get to the bottom of anything. They have the means to do whatever they want when it comes to actually getting real information on who's done what, how, and why. They just choose to use those means instead to keep that information private in a way that will keep them from having to answer to anybody. They're worried about protecting the shield. They're not worried about actually getting any information that fixes the issue. And that's the core problem here. Roger Goodell will stand up and speak for the owner so they don't have to speak for themselves. In the meantime, everybody will just presume that it's one bad apple here or there. Nobody will ever be forced to answer real questions and the NFL will do whatever the hell they want to. Well, like, why why now all of a sudden are they like, okay, we're going to do our own investigation? Yeah, and what outside have they been doing for the last year? Like, this came out, that Washington Post story, which, by the way, kudos to those reporters for keeping on with this story and not just letting it die when the when Dan Snyder and his cronies try to bury it and his you know wife crying on every single podcast that'll let her come on about how tough it's been on her family. Don't even get me started because this is a family-friendly show and I don't need to have any FCC violations, but that is all BS, and that woman can, you know, stop talking because ain't nobody want to hear it. So, like, why all of a sudden is the NFL now getting involved with this? This story has been going on since July of 2020 when the first story from the Washington Post came out, and then another one came out, and then another one came out, and now this has been taken to Congress. Like, why has it taken the NFL this long to get its head out of its you-know-what to try to actually do something about this. It's ridiculous. And, of course, Roger Goodell is going to get asked about this. And it kind of is unfortunate that there are so many other massive issues that are a giant stain on the NFL in this very moment that end up taking kind of like light away from this. But at least it was addressed today publicly. And at least we know that the NFL, like, apparently is going to conduct its own investigation. People need to stay on them about it because it's such a joke, the fact that it has gone this far and Dan Snyder continues to have a football team and, you know, now they're touting, oh, great, like, look, we're not racist anymore. We don't call ourselves the Redskins. We're the commanders. Like, 
to, you think that changes anything about the toxicity that's inside your organization and all the nonsense that you cultivated all these years and swept under the rug and like hired your own team to conduct an investigation that basically would help you in the end because the report and the findings are never going to get released? Miss me with that. That doesn't make any sense. If you, in any walk of life, have been busted doing something you're not supposed to do, one of the most important things, if you're really trying to change, is transparency. And all the league would have to do is be very transparent about the investigations it's done, why this investigation would be different than whatever they've done for the last 18 months, what they've messed up, and why they're going to get it right this time. If they actually came in, again, I'm saying the same thing I said 10 minutes ago about a different topic. If they came in with actionable items that you could actually see what they're doing and how they're doing it, maybe I would believe them. But in the meantime, until they do that, we know what's really happening. The rich people that own these teams are protecting the rich people that own these teams. It's that simple through all of it. They are protecting the brotherhood of NFL owners, not any individuals. Coming up next, what kind of coach are the Bears getting? We'll talk to an expert about them. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Hello there. I'm Mark Robbins. Second quarter of game one of our NBA doubleheader on ESPN and, of course, on the ESPN app. Charlotte and the Bulls. Hornets and Bulls tied at 37 with about seven to go in the first half. Following that one, history is going to be made as a crew made up of all women leading the broadcast of the Warriors at Utah. You can catch it all. 10 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and the app. Super Bowl Sunday is going to feature the Rams and the Bengals from L.A. Now, you can break down the game from an X's and O's standpoint, and plenty are, and will continue to do so up until game time. But ESPN NFL analyst Ryan Clark gives you a, a look at how attitude and staying cool, not trying to win the game every time you take the snap, can be a big factor this Sunday. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Courtney Cronin in for Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. Spain and Fitz is presented by Progressive Insurance. Protecting your small business is a big deal. Cover what you've worked so hard for. Visit ProgressiveCommercial.com. Let's get a little sense. I, I love talking Super Bowl with guys that play the game because, A, they know more than all of us combined, and, B, they just are going to celebrate it better. That's what I believe. We're joined now by Al-Qadim Muhammad, uh, Colts defensive end. Al-Qadim, thanks so much for the time, man. Let's start with the basics here. What's the Super Bowl watching experience going to be like for you? Oh, it's going to be a great experience. It's two great teams um, battling. You know, the Super Bowl is, is a big game, and it could go either way. You know, the stakes are high. How do you do it as a player, knowing that you've got friends all around the league, maybe even some on the Bengals and on the Rams? Like, Do you have a vested rooting interest for someone who's going to be watching it like the rest of us on Sunday? Uh, not really, no. I just want I – want, I wish the best for both teams. And, you know, um, I hope everybody come out healthy. And uh, I wish them the best of luck in the game. Is it ever weird? Like, I, I, So I'll go back to my music days. And before I was lucky enough to make it music, I would watch my buddies play like the Grammys and things like that. And there was always this twinge in me that was like, man, I want to be there so bad it's tough to watch. For a player, when you're watching guys that you know in the league playing the Super Bowl, is it fun or does it give you a little bit of that like, oh, that should be mine? No, nah, it's actually, it's fun. You know, uh, again, like you, you're rooting for, you know, both. I mean, I, I just want everybody to, you know, to play a great game and, and, and come out healthy. And, uh, again, it's a Super Bowl. The stakes are high. The game could go either way. So, I mean, that's that's kind of my take on just watching the game. 
So this offseason, there's been a lot of turnover, as we see every year with coaching staffs, all that. Your former defensive coordinator, Matt Eberflus, ends up going to Chicago. The Colts hired Gus Bradley as a new defensive coordinator. What do you know about him as a coach? Have you had a chance kind of to, to study, like, what the defense might become in 2022 just yet? I don't know a lot about him. Um, I, heard a lo- I, I, heard a, I heard a lot, but I don't know a lot about him personally. But I hear he's a great coach, a great guy, and uh, you know um, he, he's the right guy for the job to put us in, a, in in the right position to 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 hopefully be playing in the Super Bowl. What can you tell Bears fans about Eberflus? Eberflus is a great coach, uh, high energy, high character guy, good character guy. Um, he's the same guy every day, and uh, he emphasized you know the hints first of all. Uh, you know, hustle and takeaways and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he loved guys that, that play hard, that's aggressive, that's, that, that come with that same energy every day and uh, week in and week out. So, they, you know, they got, they got themselves a great head coach over there. Um, and, uh, you know, congratulations to Coach Eberflus. Now, on the other side of things with the Los Angeles Rams, the big name that everybody's talking about that's not Matthew Stafford, it's not Cooper Cup, is always going to be Aaron Donald. He's a game wrecker. And as a fellow defensive lineman, I'm sure that you can appreciate all that he brings to the table as multiple defensive player of the year awards. I don't know if, 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 you, if you study his tape or if, you, if this is something that people in your position around the league talk about, but why is he so different? Uh, and what makes uh, him so elite? He's so strong and explosive. He played with great technique, and uh, he got a good he got a good feel for the game. You know, he got a good feel for the game, and uh, he just you know he, he his recognition and his IQ when it comes to uh, down to the game is, is elite. You know, and the course of the game, you know, as far as him, I'm pretty sure with feedback from him and his coaches and stuff like that, or just stuff that he know. Um, as a football player, he made great great adjustments, and, and 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 that's what makes him great. He played with good leverage, and just good great technique. You played your college ball at Miami, right? So obviously, some change happening there. Like, uh, how you feeling about the Hurricanes this year? Like, give me the the lowdown on what I need to know. I think the Hurricanes going to be great. I think they're going to try to keep that talent, that Florida talent in Florida. Get it at got get it at uh, the University of Miami. They got a great coaching staff. Um, you know, they got the right guys. And, and, and one of the biggest things with the University of Miami um, this upcoming season is them bringing in the right guys, the high-character guys, guys that, uh, you know, is, is going to uh, be willing to sacrifice and do whatever it takes to, to win, you know. So that's what it's all about, you know, doing the right things on and off the field to be successful as a, as, as a uh, university. Is there somebody in the locker room that you trash talk on college football Saturdays? Uh yeah, Xavier Rose, he went to Florida State, so uh-huh. you know how that is. <laughs> yeah, on X, I mean, I cover the Minnesota Vikings for ESPN.com, and he was here for the first four seasons that I covered the Vikings. And one of my favorite players to talk to um, always told it how it is, and I thought it was a really cool story for him when he moved on from Minnesota and went to the Indianapolis Colts. And I saw a stat this past year, which actually kind of surprised me, that of every defensive player in the entire NFL, he played every single snap. There's not a single other player who was on the field for 100% of defensive plays for their respective teams this season, which is just kind of remarkable in his turnaround. What, you know, how have you seen him at this point of his career be able to you know, take his game to that next level and also kind of reinvent himself in the same breath. 
Um, I think it starts with just, you know, just take care of your body. If you take care of your body, you're able to do those things, you know. So that's where it start by I mean, start with doing the right things off the field to, so you can do what you need to do on the field and stay on the field. Al Green, obviously uh, you're doing great things in the community as well. You started the Liz Foundation. Tell everybody a little bit about that. Uh, the Liz Foundation, uh, I named it the Liz Foundation after my grandmother, and, and she was a giving person, and I'm all about giving back and uh, taking care of people that's not as fortunate, doing things in the inner city. Um, as far as, you know, Pop Warner teams and stuff like that, turkey drives, Christmas giveaways, and different things to just show my appreciation. Um, you know, just me being uh, fortunate and being blessed and being able to play this game at a high level and, uh, you know, being successful at doing it. So, you know, my, my, my thing is to give back to people that's not as fortunate um, in all different walks of life. Man, love love every ounce of that and love promoting that for any player that's out there doing great things, which you are, man. We appreciate your time. Enjoy the Super Bowl. You got to pick who you think is going to win. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, the game could go either way. It's a high-state game or whatever it is, the Super Bowl. So, oh, you know, man. we see what happens. That, that's how you know that you've been in the league long, like the media training, kick it in, not giving anybody any billboard material. We appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. No doubt. Love getting all these players' insights on everything throughout the course of this game. In the meantime, speaking of the Super Bowl, we do have an update on the health of two important players. This is Adam Schefter, ESPN NFL insider, earlier today on NFL Live talking about the health of two key tight ends in this game. Both are coming off sprained MCLs. And Tyler Higby, Sean McVay, the Rams head coach, did not sound optimistic about the chances that he would practice or play this week. He didn't practice last week. Don't know that he'll practice this week. That will be a big loss for the Rams offense. He's one of Matthew Stafford's most reliable targets out there. Meanwhile, as for the Bengals and their tight end, C.J. Uzama, who's dealing with the same injury as Tyler Higby. Zach Taylor said today that he thinks Uzama will be able to practice tomorrow and could be on track to play on Sunday. You saw him hobble off the field Sunday, was crying in the cart, but as it turns out, he may not miss any time. During the pep rally on Monday, he threw away his knee brace, was running around to the fans, and C.J. Uzama said there's no way that he's going to miss the most important and biggest game of his life. Courtney, it feels like that's important for the yeah. Bengals, obviously, to have that safety net, especially when we all know that Joe Burrow's going to have to get rid of the ball quick. Yeah, no, I mean, and I thought that that was a nice little gesture from CJ himself, taking off the knee brace, throwing it. I think it landed on, like, the B logo um, mm. down the field, which was just kind of cute. Uh, and then, you know, you hope that, you know, him running around, whatever work he gets in at practice, if any, this week, that he doesn't end up having sort of any setback. The Tyler Higby thing, it's a little it's a little bit more concerning. I mean, you need those middle-of-the-field F tight ends, those move tight ends that you can kind of place wherever, who can be your security blanket, both for Joe Burrow and for Matthew Stafford, respectively. So, um, you know, hope that both of them are able to play. I mean, it's just another two luxury weapons that both quarterbacks end up having and end up being a big part of the red zone game and a big part of like that over the middle of the field threat. Uh, that both teams have. I feel like we've spent so much time obsessing about the weapons on the outside and the wide receivers overall in general in this game that it's the tight ends that can end up sneaking up on sure. everybody. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe we haven't given them enough love throughout the course of the week. Speaking of the Super Bowl, there's pressure on a group of people you might not be thinking of for the Super Bowl. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Pressure is nothing new at the Super Bowl. But what if I told you that nobody we've talked about on any ESPN show all week 
actually has more pressure than the people involved in the halftime show. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Courtney Cronin in for Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. Courtney, I'm just saying it. Like, certain halftime shows get a different level of hype coming in. And uh, this is partially generational. Like, it's partially about the the music and the impact. You know, you can look back at some years where it's been somebody like Paul McCartney playing. And while Paul McCartney has, obviously, huge influence to the music business overall and to, to music from a generation, you know, I don't know that pop culture was sitting there for months dissecting everything about Paul McCartney, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can look at different times and you can say, okay, I understand why this act was part of it. And so often, special guests are really the thing that throws it over the top. And even the special guests aren't known until the last second. You've looked at some, like, Bruno Mars and and Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're like, okay, well, that might be an interesting mashup. But this one, this year, because it is so packed with Hall of Famers, like absolute legends for their industry, and they're all coming together with Dre running everything in the way the tracks will be put together, I think there's more pressure and hype for this halftime show than any halftime show I can remember other than maybe Prince. Yeah, I mean, you've got to look at all the names of it, too. So it's Dr. Dre. Kendrick Lamar, Snoop Dogg, and as we heard there on the rejoin, Mary J. Blige is also going to be a part of it. I think she might have been a later ad. Um, she wasn't in like the initial group. And I remember hearing that. I was like, man, this is this is my childhood. It's probably your childhood too, Fitz. I mean, there are so many of us that are like, yes, this is the kind of music that's going to get us hype in a way that maybe like the weekend kind of felt like more of like a niche audience. I mean, I love the weekend. Don't get me wrong. I thought the performance was avant-garde and wonderful, but this, these are artists that touch their tentacles go everywhere. They touch all walks of people. And so you have to get it right. And you have to build something. It's the buildup of this has been going on for months now and it has to go off without a bang because of the caliber of artists that you're bringing in here. It's not just JLo. It's not just Shakira. And granted, they were great in their own right in 2009, the 2020 Super Bowl, even though it's 2019 season. This itself is like the who's who of rap and hip hop from like the late 90s and 2000s. Like you, and obviously throwing Kendrick Lamar in there now too is. Wow, like you're hitting all the genres, the kings and queen of their genres. That's you can't miss with that. You're hitting such a crossover appeal too. Like that's one of the things that I think really stands here. Like when you talk about the impact that J Lo has had and the impact that Shakira has had, I think you can definitely look at, for example, Latin culture and say, okay, there are a lot of people that have been really moved by that music. But I don't know that it has this like doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter what gender you are. You have a memory assigned to that song. And when Mm -hmm. you start talking about Snoop and you start talking about Dre and you start talking about Eminem for the chapter that I think he was really good. I I mean, I'm not always a fan of some of the newer stuff, but personally, but you start talking about lasting impact. There is going to be this moment when, you know, three generations from now, they pull up the biggest songs of a 10 year period. All of these artists are going to be represented. Yep. Mary J is somebody that, like, it, it just it hits different because the tempos and the pace of the songs, like, not to be too musical for a second, but like, where all of that, like, it's it's you're in the club, like, your head bops. You know exactly where you were. You know where you were when you heard it. You know the memory that you assigned with that moment in life. Like, it hits so many people at such a different level that that's part of the magic of this. For for once, I feel like it really crosses everybody. Everybody at a Super Bowl party, no matter where you're from, is going to have some sort of memory around every one of these songs. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm, like, bopping my head right now. I remember being, like, you know, 12 years old going to buy the No More Drama album and 
getting into R&B music because of Mary J. Blige. Like, obviously, I couldn't get my mom to get me the next episode when I was nine um, with Dr. Dre, like, you know, his studio album because of the parental advisory logo on it. But eventually I got it. Eventually I got it past my parents. And, like, those are the moments. This is going to conjure so many memories for people of what they associate these songs with. And, you know, like I'll be working out now. And still Dre will come on and I'll go even harder in the gym because of that. Like there are people who associate these songs with like memory, like people, not just my age, people, not just your age, like this spans the spectrum. It's not like a niche performing group, but you know, the thing that I'm kind of curious about here, and we talked about prop bets on the show last night. I don't know if I'd be willing to put a wager on it, but you know what this is the 10 year anniversary of what? The Tupac hologram at Coachella. Uh, no, I don't want it. I don't Do wanna... we think no. that that... I mean, come on. You talk about L.A. music. You talk about hip-hop and somebody who was like a, the birth of that movement out West. You've got to... You, you have to believe that they're going to be honoring him in some form or fashion I, at I, the Super Bowl. Yes. So, Not saying another hologram because we did see it with Prince here. It was really cool during the, um, the, uh, the performance of Justin Timberlake during the Super Bowl in 2018. Uh, during the I Will Die For You uh, moment that they had. It was incredible. So I don't know if it's going to be the exact same thing, because I remember how much work went into that, uh, <laughs> getting the Tupac hologram and making sure it was realistic at Coachella in 2012. But we do think that they're going to do something to honor him, yes? Yeah, I think there'll be some way to honor him. And California Love's definitely going to be on the playlist. One thing that, that I think is going to be interesting for this, you get uh, it's a little over 12 minutes, right? So... Uh, that's how long the halftime performance is, and I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, but you know, all of this is pre-recorded. Like, not the, not all the vocals, but all the music's pre-recorded. Sure. Like, you know, everybody freaked out a few years ago when Flea didn't have his bass plugged in, and what what was funny to me about that is nobody ever sat back and thought, wait, so F- Flea's not plugged in, but the rest of Bruno Mars' band is. Like, it doesn't work. Tracks don't work that way. So, you know, it's all been pre-recorded. The music portion of it, and so. In my mind, Dre's had this responsibility, which is where the pressure comes from. Over the last couple of months, they've been in the studio working on this, right? They've been they've been figuring out the perfect way to integrate as much as possible. The problem is, how do you respect all of the legends involved in this in a way that really feels perfect for a 12-minute set? Like, I, I feel like by Sunday night, my, my bold prediction is Sunday night, Mary J, Twitter will be uh, in, in an uproar because she didn't get enough love. Like, that's yeah. just... That's going to happen. And then you've got the other side of this of finding a flow to all of it, which is where Dre really, you know, I think will shine. The question is, how do you give flow to this many epic artists and then work in Tupac? Like, I just don't know. And 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 then, you know, Kendrick is a little outside the box for what the rest is pace yeah. and feel-wise. So, like, how are they going to make sure that Kendrick is in there in a way that represents his music but also, you know, feels right? That's one time I'll go back to the 90s and say – that when we had in sync Britney and Aerosmith together, the way they came together is part of what made that performance really good. Everybody was together on tracks that made sense, and that's that's tougher to do than people talk than people think. Do you think that? And I hate saying this. Do you think it's too many too many artists? Yes, all at once. Okay, like okay. I I, I kind of with you because it's like I love, gosh, like you, you bring up all these names and I'm like, man, it makes sense. And I don't want to say like Kendrick is the outlier because he's, you know, the, the newer of the group. But I think of the nine, late 90s. I think of that era of hip hop. I think of Dr. Dre. I can't think of Eminem without thinking of Dr. Dre. And I can't think of Snoop Dogg without thinking of Dr. Dre. And somehow it like I, I kind of struggle putting Mary J. Blige in that mix and Kendrick in that mix, too. 
But I, I'm with you. I mean, Dr. Dre is a genius for a reason. He's been in the studio working on making sure that this set itself is going to be seamless because you only have 12, 15 minutes, whatever it is, the time like on stage together. I just like, I hope, I hope it's not too much. I hope they're not trying to fit like way too much into, you know, one thing. Cause I honestly kind of felt like, did it really make sense in 2019 when they did, when big boy came out to kryptonite with the car and obviously no Andre 3000 because RIP outcast. Um, but then it was like maroon five. And I just got like confused by the whole thing. Like this one actually makes sense. Cause the artists fit. Yeah. I just don't know how it's all going to work. Uh, you're right. And I thought that that the one you referenced there uh, was an epic fail. And that's yeah. where it, you've got to be careful when you put these things together in a way that everybody gets their shine. And, you know, it's when you're talking about careers that started all the way back with NWA, now suddenly being uh, artists that are personified as hanging out with Martha Stewart, it shows you the crossover appeal for all of these acts that are involved. Like they are such household names and they are in the same vicinity. So how they're all meshed together in a way that respe- pays respects to all of them is important. And that's going to be, I think, what we'll have all eyes on throughout the course of the halftime show. I haven't been this excited for a halftime show in a long, long time. That that much I can tell you. I'm also excited for Freddie and Fitz- Fitzsimmons, Dre, Snoop, and Kendrick all joining the guys. Don't be, sh- be sure to check it out. Coming up next. <laughs> 